right, let me go ahead and get started. All those who don't know me, I'm Tim Ryder. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings this week. So uh, why don't we go ahead and start with uh, prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be present with us here this morning, that your Spirit would uh, inspire our thoughts and our minds uh, to see a clear picture of you this morning as we review this material and the story about, story about Hannah, that you would uh, reveal to us who you truly are. We might see you in a new way that draws us ever closer to you. pray that you be with uh, Tim and Christy as they continue their travels and that you would keep them safe and uh, allow them to bless many people as they travel around. Thank you for these things and uh, pray you be with us just now. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this week's uh, lesson is entitled, Hannah Becoming Someone. And uh, you might want to just go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 1, that's uh, where we start out at. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights of the story here and uh, kind of get y'all's reaction on what some of the things that stood out to you were the first time you kind of read through it. Uh, so basically we have, uh, we're starting out here, First Samuel 1, 1 through 16. We have uh, a man named Elkna, has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, I guess his name is, I don't know, I guess that's how you pronounce it. And uh, his one wife, Hannah, couldn't have children, and the other wife, Peninnah, uh, could, and it, apparently she torments Hannah all the time with this fact. Uh, reminds her, it makes it seem as though she reminds her constantly of this and really upsets Hannah. And one day she upsets Hannah so badly that she goes up to the temple uh, where Eli the priest is and she goes and cries before the Lord. And apparently, apparently she cries in such a way that Eli even thought she was drunk, which I don't know exactly how you do that, but... Anyways, uh, then she made a promise in her prayer to the Lord if he would not forget her and give her a child that she would uh, give him to the Lord. So Eli gives her his blessing, tells her to go in peace. Uh, and then I notice the text says her face was no longer downcast uh, and she leaves. And the next thing you know, she's having a child. His name Samuel. And uh, when he is old enough to be weaned, it says she came up to the temple and gave him to the Lord, where Eli was, as promised. So that's quite a bit of information and a little story there. But what were y'all's uh, kind of take on it the first time you read through it? What were some of the things that stood out to y'all? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read some commentary on it, and there was some speculation that, similar to how Abraham and Sarah, uh, when she couldn't have a child, and then she told him to go and take another wife, that perhaps that's the same situation here. The main thing that struck me was how her view of God was. Um, it's kind of portrayed by the author of the story um, that God kind of has his hand preventing her from having children upon her womb. I thought that was interesting. It was almost portrayed in such a way uh, that it's almost like she felt like she was cursed or that she was being punished or, or something along these lines. Uh, 
that, that God was keeping her from having a child. Uh, now, of course, you've got the other wife that's kind of playing devil's advocate constantly, you know, stoking the fire. Oh, yeah, you're nothing. You know, you're cursed. God doesn't love you. You know, these sorts of things. Uh, I kind of get that picture as I'm as I'm reading that story. Um, and it, uh, I thought it was interesting that it's it's kind of not until um, she goes up and pours her heart out to the Lord and really seems to have an intimate encounter with him at the temple that uh, that it seems like she finds happiness and peace. Yes? That seems to be a common thread to a lot of the Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Rachel and Leah and Hannah and Ruth and Bob and the one that one in love the most that can't have the kids. Right, sure, yeah. Yeah, and I, that was another interesting point that it it, it made it very clear that Elkna loved her more than the other wife, but she couldn't have kids, and so... Uh, so could that possibly be a representation of Christ's character to us? Sure. We go against the grain. We aren't necessarily the way everybody thinks it should be, but yet we are very special. Sure. The, the, the things that our, that our culture tells us are important maybe aren't what God views as important. She found her total meaning in in uh, her child, and, and she wasn't anybody unless she had a child, but God maybe is trying to bring her to the point that you are somebody to me, regardless of whether you have a child or not. Let's go ahead and go down to the uh, third paragraph in Sunday's lesson. It says, uh, For Hannah jealously and the sense of being nobody created an explosive mix of emotions that finally blew up when she poured out her heart before the Lord. What made matters worse was that Hannah was not getting any younger. Time was against her, and apparently so was God. So I, you know, I find that very telling as to what her, where she's at with her relationship with God, where she's at in this whole process. She's not only feeling that God is against her, but that time is running out, I, which I found that you know kind of interesting because... I, I've, I kind of feel like sometimes and through ev- our evangelism, through uh, maybe, maybe the way we even share the gospel with our friends, we might kind of pressure them or make them feel like they're, they're in the, uh, that maybe even that God is against them or that time is running out on them and that Jesus is going to come back and uh, uh, you better get ready or you know, time's going to run out on you. Is, is that really... Is that really the way it is in God's eyes? Is, 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 there, a, is there a set moment in time? And is he have, does he have a limit on his patience? You know? Yes. But isn't that sad that we go through life thinking that we must have some certain kind of identity? I mean, this, this comes not just for bearing children for women, but all kinds of things. You know, this young man feels that he must be a minister or he must be electrician or whatever and life circumstances prevent that dream from happening and wouldn't it be better to what's the saying, bloom where you're planted and accept that as this is the place that God has given me and let me look around and see how I can here instead of being discontented with what I don't Mm -hmm. not having a preconceived uh... historically 10% of women are barren yeah. So if, you know, it's like God planned for there to be women 
who have talents that they can give, and women who don't marry, and that they have these talents that they can give that are needed in the world. Okay. I just think about Joseph. He did the same thing. Is where no matter what role he was in, he was yeah. very, he was very accurate, etc. Mm -hmm. I, I do somewhat um, just retract from the idea that God planned this stuff. But the fact remains that, that there are many women who don't marry or who don't have children, and God gives them very significant roles in the world. And the idea that there's only one way you can live your life is so damaging. Touch, uh, we'll touch on that a little bit more in a second. I agree with that concept. I'm worried about to remember the blessed with children. Yes. There's an awful lot of places and things that I can see God's fingerprints. Yes. That probably wouldn't have been safe. And you can do things. You can do So, yeah, without getting into a whole discussion, yes, I agree with you. I just find it difficult to understand how Hannah wanted a baby so bad, and then when she finally got one, when he was still very young, she gave him up to Eli, and I don't know how thrilled Eli would have been to here's a baby in the rings. But I thought that you don't know how much he weighed. Okay, hold on. I've, I've, I've skipped over my wife like six times, so uh, here, here, here you go. Yes. When I was reading the story, I was also pretty struck by she's so devastated by this. It's like, you know killing her that she hasn't had a child and I mean I think maybe some women feel that way today if they can't have a baby but I think it's very very cultural and I think the lesson did a good job of explaining how um, it was very cultural and like was already mentioned Sarah and Rachel also thought that God was cursing them and that he had closed and whoever wrote Samuel I think had that cultural perspective that if a woman couldn't have a child it was because God prevented her from having a child and I don't think that that was the case that was just what they believed back then and so not only was Hannah upset because she wanted a child but she was upset because everyone else in her community thought that she was cursed so everyone was looking down on her she felt like the other wife was superior to her and so it was more than her own personal wants it was what she was feeling from other people looking down on her as well sure I guess to me what I saw in the lesson was that God uses people where they are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think of Rahab and different ones that played great parts in the whole history um, of, of God's plan. And he took women and men that really didn't understand him totally and still made something good out of sure. wherever they were and whatever faith they had. Encouraging to me. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I just think it's important for us to understand that anything that's outside of the boundaries of God's beautiful, good, original, perfect creation is a result of lawlessness and the pain and the agony that we have, or the the devastating things that happen to it, whether it be that we're buried and have a child and we've gone through whatever bad experience we've gone through, none of that is at the hand of God. But He meets us right where we're at and works in all these things for our good. Sure. And I just think that's a really important thing to know. Yeah, all, all, all things work together for good for those who believe. It doesn't say that God caused all things and then makes good, you know. 
No, it, he, takes, he can take any situation, however bad it is, and cause something good to come out of it. And that doesn't mean that he's responsible for it happening in the first place. Yes? One other issue is that um, you look at Hannah's prayer. She was so engaged in her prayer and so animated that she was considered drunk. Mm-hmm. How often do I get so animated with God in my prayer, <laughs> so involved, yeah. that I be considered anything other than yeah, she actually, it's obvious uh, that she was having a, a real encounter there. Um, let's see here, now where were we? Um, let's go down to the end of Sunday's lesson. There's an interesting story they have down there. Uh, let's see, somebody want to read read that little story at the bottom of the lesson there? It's the one where it talks about the man has a child lost to leukemia. A man had lost his child to leukemia. He told the pastor that he believed his son had died because he hadn't kept the commandments faithfully, especially the Sabbath, and so God punished him. What is wrong with this kind of thinking? How can we protect ourselves from getting caught up in the same kind of rationale? That's an interesting story there. Uh, what, 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 what stood out to me was that... Uh, the lesson kind of takes this story and points to it and says, how ridiculous is this belief, you know, that, that uh, a child could not keep the Sabbath and God comes and punishes him and gives him leukemia. Well, don't we kind of teach something similar when we talk about the end of time, when we say that, uh, you know, uh, God's going to come and punish the wicked? We'll even sometimes go as far as to say that those who choose... Sabbath find, you know, his blessing, and those who choose Sunday, this is talking in reference to the end of time, you know, are going to be punished. And what is the difference in that line of thinking versus this? I mean, how is that any different than this, I guess is my thought. Katrina was blamed on the wickedness of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So was AIDS blamed on yeah. If, if, if there's a if there's a belief in Christianity that teaches that God killed His own Son, then it's easy to see how these these uh, misconceptions can, can sprout up, and we can view God in a in a punitive and. Uh, but God didn't kill His own Son. Correct, but that belief is is rampant in Christianity, and sometimes you hear it from Adventist pulpits as well. Yeah, you can kind of fill in the blanks. It doesn't matter what the subject is. It's, uh, uh, you know, whether it's Sabbath or abortion or, you know, whatever it is, there's a reason for God to punish. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's actually go uh, to First Samuel one eleven. If somebody would like to read that. That's Hannah's prayer there. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. There's a few things that sprout up in my mind when I hear the prayer and I, and I think about God giving, you know, she comes and she's in a, obviously in a great struggle. All she can think about is she wants this child. Um, then she comes and she makes a promise to the Lord. She says, you know, don't forget about me, all these different things. And then she goes home and she has a child. So some of the questions that popped up in my mind were, 
did God give Hannah a child because she promised him to God? I mean, is, is this like a reward thing? What do y'all think? Sure, but did but does did God give it to her because He knew she was going to keep her promise? No. Doesn't that sound like righteousness works? A little bit. <laughs> That's why I said it's an honest question. It's interesting that she's willing to promise something that he had to keep. He'd never get a haircut. Yeah. Which uh, also brought side note brought up a thought, you know, like that's kind of like Samson, and I thought, is that like, is that something cultural going on there? I'm unaware of. Is it, uh, you give you you give up up up. The Nazarene sect of Jewish faith. Okay. They were, they Showed your faith by not cutting your hair. Yeah, I guess I should have Googled it. Maybe he's going to preach in the wilderness. <laughs> Back here. On Exodus 22, verse 29, it says, The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. My grandparents believe that, and that's why I'm, when their first son was born, they were attending the church of St. Cashmere at the time, and I cannot go Cashmere because they gave the first son to the <laughs> Yes? Well, you know, looking at her motivation, it was just all about her. Yeah, but yet God worked with her even though she had a selfish motive. I was just going to say, I, I felt the same way when I read that chapter. Like it was very selfish, and then I kind of skimming through the chapter and patriarchs and prophets on this. And, you know, I don't like talking about like she was such a homely woman, so maybe it wasn't as selfish as it appeared to be from the chapter. I don't know. If it was indeed that selfish, would she have given the child of the Lord? I guess what I would say, what does that say about God, you know, that, could that regardless of what, if her motive was, you know, ultimately she wanted to give back to God or whether it was... Maybe partially, I want a child, and I would like to give back to God if he gives me a child. Regardless, you know, we all have to start somewhere on the path. And just because she started out with a selfish motive uh, doesn't mean that, that she wasn't still trying to do God's will. I mean, you know, we all have a starting point, I guess is what I'm trying to say. When I read the story, I thought, okay, so she was going to give the child to God. What if the child refused to do it? <laughs> Teenager, he said, I'm not living this life anymore. Why don't I do it? Yeah. That's what happened to Samson. That's what happens a lot of times. So what happens then? I mean, is, is she, is it her fault the child did not continue on? Did she not keep her promise? Which I've heard people say that. Yeah. I think when I read the story, what impressed me, though, regardless of how she was following with her, whether she was selfish or whatever, it shows to me how the beautiful character of what God is like, even in our sinfulness, He's willing to work with us. And 
to me, if anything, it says, it says a lot about him. What sure. For each of us, when we are in desperate pain for whatever reason, he hears our prayers and he answers in a way that um, soothes our hearts. Well said. Also, God oftentimes just works to say something about himself for the good of the bigger audience. And in this case, if the people thought that Hannah was being cursed by God because she couldn't have a child, then he might work in this situation to bless her with a child just to say, not so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, know, and knowing full well that she would give him the glory. Yeah. I think also, um, Celeste pointed out that in that particular culture, having a child, specifically a male child, provided for her future. And so it shows her unselfishness that she was saying, please give me a male child, but he'll be yours. Yeah. So she's not concerned about her own future. You know, she's, she's just saying, I'm going to give it to you. Sure. Some other questions I kind of thought of, uh, some of these might kind of answer themselves after what we just talked about, but what effect did her pleading have on God? Does it does it have an effect? Does it change God in some way? Does it change his stance? Um, what effect does her pleading have on her? Um, and was God looking for something from her before he would be willing to move forward and bless her with the son? Was there was there a moment in the interaction with him and her where it was like, aha, now I can give it to you? I don't know. Um, I'm going to move down to uh, Tuesday's lesson. Uh, this actually came from the teacher's comments, so I'm not I'm guessing maybe y'all don't have this in there. But uh, the thought of not getting what she wanted was intolerable, it said. Um, when she, but when she walked out of the sanctuary, she was at peace. Nothing in her circumstances had changed. Eli the priest had blessed her, and that was no doubt significant, but uh, even he could do no more than wish her well. We don't know if she was sure that God would grant her wish in the way she wanted it, but we're told that her face was no longer sad. And then it says, uh, what had changed was that she had aligned herself with God. So I thought that was significant and well stated. Um, do you think that perhaps in her interaction with God that she came to a point where she was okay not having a child? Do you think that she could have truly experienced peace if she was still holding on to, I have to have this child? Because there was nothing, I mean, sure, we don't know, we, we didn't experience with her, uh, like she could have heard a small voice, you will have this child, I don't know. But, there's nothing that, like it says, there's nothing that assures us that she left knowing she was going to have a child. But yet, she was no longer sad, and she was at peace. I think part of that is, whenever, at least in my own experience, when I've had a struggle of some sort, and you continue to be with God in the way that she did, where she poured out her soul to Him, there is a peace that comes simply because you, in your wrestling, sort of like Jacob, you surrendered to God. 
and um, he is working, he is transforming power in your life, and that brings you to a point where you can accept whatever happens to a certain extent. And so I think maybe Hannah had that same experience. After that experience, she had truly been connected to God in her experience. Sure. And had a real growth experience that would probably continue. She no doubt had faith to believe. Yeah. Yes, sir. Maybe the story is really not about him at all. Maybe it's all about Sarah. You know, God just made perfect through her weakness. So he, he showed that uh, this was a very special person. Samuel was actually somebody that wasn't supposed to be. She was barren. But Samuel was somebody who come forth to uh, it was special to God. Yeah. Interesting perspective. Can anybody think of any reasons why God might have delayed her having the child? In other words, I'm not necessarily saying that God's preventing a child from coming forth, but enabling a child to be born. Can, there, can you think of any reasons why that might have been? Yes. Well, in real life, sometimes women that have difficulty conceiving is because of the anxiety of time to conceive, and when they give it up and forget, it, then they you know, go on and with their lives and one of the thoughts I had uh, was that obviously you've got an antagonist here in the story. You've got Penina constantly feels like belittling her, making her feel uh, someone not of worth. Um, is it possible that she could have had the child uh, because she wanted it so badly and used that as ammunition? come back at Penina and be like, aha, now I am the one and only special wife in this whole thing and really put her in the bad spot now, turn it around on her. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I can honestly say that I probably wouldn't struggle with not, you know, being a little in your face after uh, <laughs> After uh, such a such so much, so long of uh, being antagonized, I also wonder why God blessed the other woman and let her have an abundance of children, and she wasn't godly apparently because she wouldn't have that attitude towards him. Sure. Why was she? Yeah, Leah was not loved. Did God bless her with children, or was it just a, a natural, yeah, natural consequence of, of uh, sexual intercourse that right. white house would want? Exactly, and, and I guess that brings it down to the fact is, is God in control of that? In control of that. Is God causing one to have children and one to not? Yeah. Is, there, is there perhaps just physiological reasons why one is able to have a child and one is not? As far as I know, there's only one, one time where God causes one to have children, to have a child. Where it's specifically spoken, yeah, sure. So what, what, is, what do we do with where it says he closed her womb? How do we understand that? That's a good question. I'm reminded of a story about a gentleman that the disciples walking out with Jesus. They ask Jesus, they see this man that had been blind from birth. And they ask him, who sinned that this man would be born blind? His parents or him? And Jesus corrects him and says, neither. But so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And just a couple chapters prior, it talks about what the works of God 
are. And it's basically that this is the word of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And it's interesting that memory verse that's there in this lesson uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah's prayer after this event, after dedicating her son. Uh, I like my translation when it talks about, uh, this says, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. The NIV says deliverance. But it's an interesting thing that, uh, amidst this whole story and this experience that she had, ultimately, it's God's way of working with her to bring her to an understanding of His salvation, His love, His grace, His mercy, just like it was with that blind man. Because later on, that blind man does, Jesus comes and sees him again, and, he, and, and that's ultimately God's work in all of us, is to work through these situations that we've been dealt with and, and, and bring us closer to Him somehow. I actually had highlighted that particular verse that you just read there. And what draw, drew my attention to it was it says, uh, let's see, let me find it here. Well, I'll read it again. Then okay. I prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. Verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. One of the parts that stuck, stuck out to me is that it talks about her enemies. And maybe this isn't a perfect application from previous chapter to this, but in the first chapter where it does mention God held her womb, would it not seem as though that God is then, in effect, the oppressor and the deliverer at the same time if he's the one responsible for preventing the child and then allowing it? It's like she's being delivered from her enemies but then somehow God is the enemy at the same time. I, maybe not a perfect application, but that is something that crossed my mind. Because a lot of times we do present it, the, the salvation as such. Uh, we need to be saved from a punishment, or we need to be saved from a consequence, or, or God's wrath, or whatever words you want to fill in the blank with. Uh, but, um, but yet at the same time, our source of salvation comes from God. But yet at the same time, our source of punishment comes from God. It seems to be confusing how God could be against us and for us at the same time. Yes? I grew up with the idea that God does push us down with our face in the mud to remind us of our place so that we will somehow finally turn and look up at him and beg him to save us. I totally reject that now in, in my theology. And anything that smacks of that at all, I have to take a second look at. Uh, I was just going to, I don't know, maybe only kind of more directly answer the question about, um, well, did God close her womb? Because that's what the Bible says. I think that's when you have to decide for yourself whether or not you believe, like we talked a few weeks ago in class, is scripture thought inspired or word inspired? And is every single word of scripture straight from God? Because as we've talked about already, it was a very common belief in that time that any woman who was barren, that God had closed her womb. So did the writer of First Samuel, was that those words inspired by their human influence on the scripture, or did that come directly from God? And so then in that case, I think you need to look at the rest of scripture and line it up with 
does that fall in line with everything else that you know about God? Because she might have had an erroneous position on the fact that uh, there was a physiological factor keeping her from having a child, or maybe even the devil himself had somehow set up something that was causing her not to have a child, whether it be stress from the, the relationship going on, whatever. Does that, just because he's wrong about what's causing her not to have a child, does that make it any less inspired? No, because a lot of the Bible has cultural influence. Sure. Not just I also noticed that, as we've talked about in class before, the Bible gives God credit for so many things, like God killed Saul. And and Job says, though he slay me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. God is just giving credit for all kinds of things in the Bible, and we just have to look at the bigger picture and see what he really did do and didn't do. Sure. I think there's there's actually a prevailing myth in Christianity. I mean, it's, it's you can see it even now. It's not just then that they believe that you know that God inflicts this on people. People still say it that God is in control, mm-hmm. and it's just not right. Right. They don't realize the implications of what they're saying. You know, because if you say that everything good or bad comes from God, and you just told the child who was abused. That was, that was God's will for you. Yeah, not to mention you completely cut out Satan out of the entire equation. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, where does, where's his role in this whole thing if God's really in control of everything? In, I don't know where we're reading about God closed the womb. The chapter 1, verses 5, it talks about her husband giving a double portion because God had closed her womb. I mean, this is stated in relationship to the husband's belief. Yeah. And society's belief around her. I'm not certain it's talking about the statement that was inspired that God had closed her womb. It's spoken of from the husband's perspective. He's giving her a double portion because she's been mistreated by God. But he's believing that she's being mistreated. He's going to treat her special. Yeah, that's a good point. It almost makes him feel like he's better than God is. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what position does that put him in then? And we can only only imagine such patriarchal society that if a couple doesn't have children, it's got to be the woman's fault. Whereas, you know, now I I have a couple of patients who work with fertility clinics, and they say it's it's almost half and half. The the, the couples that come in with brain fertility issues, half the problem, half the time it's a male problem. But he obviously was not the fault since he had children from the other wives. So. <laughs> Another perspective from the lesson from the teacher's comments I have here on specifically on prayer. Why does God need to be praised and adored? Is it because he will work on our behalf only if we've massaged his giant celestial ego? Is God insecure? Certainly, the gods of pagan peoples had these weaknesses, and and mytho- mythology recounts the uh, see, recounts many instances in which gods did many things for the sake of ego, lust, revenge, and similar things. But that is not the god we worship. Our god does not have a fragile ego. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need us to praise him. We need to praise him. The ego problem is ours. The issue is is magnified by our short memory. 
even the most intense and striking experiences of God's power tend to slip from our memories as life goes on. So we need to praise God to remind ourselves who God is and how dependent on him we are for everything, including our very existence. I'm not sure why I'm to be loved is selfish. I think that's a God-given thing. I think that's the way we're designed. So I'm not sure she was wrong in way she should fit into her, you know, look at us, we all dress pretty much alike. Oh, sure, I see what you're saying, yeah. So I don't know, I'm not sure that she was selfish in her desires here. Uh, sure, no, I think maybe just a, maybe a little bit misdirected. Uh, she was trying to find that sense of uh, belongingness and, and love from her culture and her society rather than from God, so it's irrelevant what her culture and her society finds important. Well, other thing, I wouldn't use her illustration of begging the Lord as something that we are supposed to always do. There may be times. For her, that was a critical thing. But... I think we actually uh, insult God sometimes by begging over and over and over. Sure. So he will finally give us the desire of our heart. Yeah. It's not always safe to do the begging. Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting that I think oftentimes people would point to a story like this as an example of how we are to come before the Lord. You know, we we should. But yet, it's an example of where she's at with her relationship with God. She feels that she has to do these things in order to be right with God. So, yeah, very good. Uh, the children of Israel, the king, when he knew it was not their best interest. Yeah. Oh, I left out the uh, last sentence of that. Uh, I had bolded it, and yet I still skipped over it. If we all made the effort to remember what God has done for us, for us, few would doubt God and his intentions for us. And that's a good point. I think oftentimes we focus on the here and the now and all of our problems. And yet we've got this long laundry list of things that God did for us up to this point in our life. And suddenly we just don't remember them anymore. It's like the children of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. So we, 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 get, we, we look at the children of Israel in the Bible and we say, uh, like, oh, these immature little kids, you know, but we do the same thing. You know, that's quite important why it's important to keep a, a record of those answered prayers and those things that God has done. Because when you do feel um, as though he's not around or not close, because the devil has distorted that or, or trapped you into thinking that way, you can go back to those times and look and see, or back to the Bible for that matter, to see where God has answered prayer. To, to help you out through that situation. Can I, can I follow up on, on giving signal to God? Yeah. I remember when I was nursing my first child and my grandpa was visiting me. My grandpa was a, you know, we talked about giving this child to a man who has failed with his own children. And how scary that would be because she knew that he had failed with his own children. And I asked my grandpa, who was a missionary in Korea for many, many years, I said, Grandpa, how old do you think Samuel was when he was given to Eli. And um, there's a verse in the Bible where Abraham has a party for Isaac on the day that he's weaned. Those of us that are nursed children, well, how would you know what that day was? But this was this is a very special kind of ceremony. And Grandpa said he was probably seven years old. And in Korea, um, the little children always nurse until they have finished their first year of school. Because that's a protection for them 
from the many diseases in a culture where they don't do dairy milk and they don't have a lot of sanitation. And so all the little first graders go home at noon to nurse. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. on that, but I just can't imagine getting a time out from school to go home and nurse. It's just, it's very foreign to our culture. Well, <laughs> one of the reasons that these amazing cultures, if you've read that book, Plays of People, one of the reasons that they were able to have these hot is they developed folk practices, like always drinking boiling water, you know, water that had just been boiled. They had folk practices that preserve life, and nursing a child to age seven is one of the things that will preserve life. Yeah, there wasn't any grocery store where you could go get a bottle of milk or <coughs> orange juice or whatever. Well, yeah, there was wine or milk, and that was about it. Milk and milk. Then it also say in the verse that uh, she, the, her husband continued to go up to the temple and make sacrifices. She made the decision to just stay home with him so she could spend as much time with him until she gave him up kind of thing. No. It just goes back to the point where the Bible was written not to us. We use it, but the, the actual script is written for a specific time and place, and it encourages us to learn something about to whom it's written. Well, but there's the other verse that says, these were not written for them, but for us, on whom the end of the earth would come. So there are things in the scripture that were not understood by the people at that time. Sure, I think it goes both ways. I think there's always double application. It's written in the language, though, of that era. You know, they did not speak about, uh, they're talking about horses running out. They're not talking about artillery pieces or airplanes or whatever else. It's written in the vernacular of the people that time was written. Anytime there's symbols involved in the section of scripture that you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, well, it doesn't even matter, New Testament's old enough. It's very difficult for us to understand because those symbols were important to those people, not to not so much to us these days. Well, the us that she's talking about was whoever wrote it, so that's still the us. It was way back then. Yeah. Well, that's us today. Yeah, that's scripture was getting for inspiration and instruction. <laughs> well, I think there's a difference between a specific symbol. Uh, of that time period versus a theme that it's trying to teach you that's applicable to anywhere, any point in time. I, I think that's where the delineation is. Let's see, let's skip ahead to Wednesday's lesson. And this is the song that we touched on, verse 1 and 2 already. 1 Samuel 2, 1 uh, two through 11. Um, if we scan down to the fourth paragraph... Uh, it says, some struggle with verse 6. 
And Hannah's song, how do we understand that? Is God arbitrary in his goodness or his judgments? In order to understand these verses, we need to remember the basic Old Testament premise of life. This is so different from modern worldview. Is it? God is the creator of life, and as creator, he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. In other words, nothing on this planet is beyond his control. This means that the biblical worldview, even negative things, are subject to God's control. Often, the biblical authors describe this perspective in a way that could suggest God's active involvement in the design of bad things happening to humanity. In other words, what God allows, God does. That's pretty, pretty well stated, but does anybody have any commentary on that? Well, he has to allow sin to run its course. Yeah. Because otherwise he can't be exonerated. He's a just God. Vindicated. I'm just offended by what he allows, he does. Yeah. We hear this quoted in Christianity all the time when Job said, uh, God giveth and God taketh away. We like said all the time in Christianity. Well, it says right here in verse 6, the Lord killeth and then he flies and bring down yeah. the grave and bring it up. And you can find the same thing in Mary's song. He put down the mighty from their seats, exalted them with low degree, he filled the hungry with good things, the rich he sent empty away. It's exactly what Mary says in Luke chapter 1. So is that actually like a quote there? Is that word for word? No. Interesting. And that's a long time after that story happened. Yeah. Well, of course, that was very believable. Yeah. In the New Testament, too, the, the Pharisees, if you were poor and, and homeless type of person, you were cursed with God. That was their, their thinking and understanding. And in, in Luke, it, Jesus talks about uh, apparently there were some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with sacrifices. And Jesus says, Do you suppose that these Galileans are greater sinners? than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate. And he says, I tell you, no. They had this idea that if you were, if bad things were happening to you, you were cursed of God. Jesus came and said, no, 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 that's not, these things happen. This is what, as, as Lisa said, this sin takes its course. Correct me if y'all disagree, but maybe the prevailing overall reason why we as sinful fallen human beings want to say, uh, you know, oh, this, this man has cancer, is car was broken, you know, all these different bad things are happening to him, his daughter died. He must have, he must really be doing something wrong. I think the reason we have a tendency to want to do that is because we never want to admit where we're at as a fallen human being. And so if we can say that someone else is worse than we are by, by evidence of all these things, then it makes us feel better about who we are. Yes, and it denies our responsibility. I mean, this is what happens in Hinduism. If God punishes that person, then that would be wrong to help them, wouldn't it? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. I was just going to comment on the fact that Jesus healed everybody, yes. no matter what their state of um, goodness or badness was, and we aren't guaranteed that these people um, will be saved from heaven. Yeah. Life was after he healed them, but he didn't uh, not he didn't judge them and say, "Well, if you're good, so I can heal you, and you're bad, I won't heal you." Right. He healed everybody. He yeah. Fixed everything. Well, it's like uh, maybe not a perfect parallel, but. When Noah built the ark, there was no, uh, you must repent and do all these things before you can get on this ark. It was just, the door's open, you can get on the ark. Well, it's interesting how we're quick to ask the question, why was a bad thing? But we never ask the question, why 
when it's, why did you die for me? Or why am I a recipient of your grace? Why are you so kind to us? Why are you so good to us? Why do you love us so much? We never ask that. We never question the good things. things, Which is, is something maybe we should do more because then we might understand who, what our true condition is. We might be able to begin to understand his love for someone like me because I'm just as bad as anyone else. And so those questions of why need to also be asked on the other spectrum if we're going to be willing to ask it when a relative has cancer or something happens. We need to think the other side too. I recently started listening to a guy named uh, Mark Woodman who... Uh, does an evangelistic series and talks about his experience of getting involved unknowingly with New Age uh, and, and, and his search for truth because he realized his, he actually grew up a Christian but discovered that his view, their view of God and his sec, that, you know, it, that was not the truth and so he just rejected Jesus, God, the whole thing altogether and started turning to other world religions. And uh, he talks about how, you know, you, through the consciousness of his mind, he could create his own destiny. He could create good things if he just wanted it bad enough and blocked out all the negative and just let in the positive. And um, he was actually doing seminars on like how to be a millionaire and how to you know uh, be successful businessman and all these things. And yet the whole time he was extremely poor, didn't have a dollar to his name, and was had this facade that he was this big successful guy. And no matter what he tried, even if he connected with the right people who were, were uh, successful, it was like there was a block. He just couldn't succeed. He just couldn't break through. And he said that in his experience, he's come to believe that not everything that's good that comes to us is from God. And not everything that is bad that comes to us is from Satan. And that's not to say who's causing or who's allowing or whatever, but just the fact that our perspective on what is good and what is bad oftentimes can be very backwards. Yes. We, 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 we get money and we think that's a good thing and God is blessing me. Well, maybe that's not God allowing you to get strike it rich, you know? I don't know. Just a thought. I think sometimes we forget the principle of randomness that not everything that happens doesn't really have a reason. Sometimes there's uh, just randomness and that's in the universe. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up with some closing thoughts here. I've got a, something I was going to read. Um, you know, I think just kind of as we look at the story of Hannah, um, it's a it's a very good representation that until we come to the true knowledge of God, we can never really find peace and happiness. She was not at peace. She was not having happiness until she wrestled with God over this matter and, and really came to a better understanding of who he was. Um, and this is out of Ty Gibson's book, To See With New Eyes, page 151. Our perception of God's character is the fulcrum of our existence, the pivotal point upon which all the significant matters of life turn. Whether we are conscious of the fact or not, the way we see God plays a major role in shaping us into who we are. The picture of God we hold in our hearts sets up within us a psychological template, a pattern of thinking and feeling, which serves as the basic perceptual paradigm by which our conscience will see and judge others in self. The way we view God's character toward us strongly influences how we relate to everyone around us and will ultimately determine how we relate to ourselves. In the spiritual dimension of life, 
by beholding we are changed. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. For as he, a man, thinketh in his heart, so he is. If you see God as condemnatory when you fail, then you will tend to condemn and reject others when they fail. On the other hand, if you see God as a changeless love for your own soul, then you will love others even when they fail. The final and inevitable step in this psychological process is either bitter or sweet, depending on your paradigm of God's character. Your perception of God's character toward you, which in turn shapes the way you relate to others, will eventually form in you the psychological boundaries by which you will finally be judged within your own conscience. The more deeply and consistently you see God as a condemnatory judge, the more you will relate to others with condemnation. And the less capable you will become of believing that God forgives you in your time of need. Forgiveness becomes off limits, not because God refuses to forgive, but because you cannot see him as forgiving. The perceptual and emotional capacity to discern God's love is destroyed by persistently refusing to love others. Anyways, I thought that fairly well summed up our discussion today. Let's go ahead and close the prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much that we're able to gather here today on the Sabbath day and uh, discuss your character and learn more about you. And I just pray that you would help us to see others the way you see us and that we can be changed to a position of acceptance to others and not a position of condemnation and, and, and judging others. I pray that we can this week move forward and try to, uh, that you can open the door for us to uh, help others, love others, and that slowly but surely, no matter what our starting point is, even if it's selfish, that you can move us to an other-centered position and that we can come to know you as you really are and come to love others as you love them. We thank you. We pray that you be with everyone in this room this week. And uh, once again, continue to be with Tim and Christy as they are gone. Thank you for these things. And we pray them in your holy name. Amen.